and welcome to Newsnight. I am Ladi Akiridulwale. It's our pleasure to have you join us today. The battle against the insurgents and terrorists of Boko Haram and other such groups in Nigeria's northeast is the focus of our discussion. My guest says the strategy now being implemented is to ensure that once overcome, terrorists are unable to resurface elsewhere and cause harm to the citizens. My guest also confirms that intelligence gathering and utilization has vastly improved in the military operations and that the military's biggest obstacle remains improvised explosive devices, IEDs, indiscriminately strewn around by the terrorists. Newsnight talks to the commander of Operation Hadin Kai, the military outfit set up to tackle insurgency in the Northeast, Major General Christopher Musa. General Musa, thank you for your time. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Let's uh, begin from uh, the current situation uh, that you have in Borno and its environs, uh, especially with uh, Operation Harding uh, Kai. When you took over, uh, that you know the name was Harding Kai, but before that, it was known as Lafiadole, which I'm told means. Uh, peace by force, but Hadinkai is cooperation. Yes. Have, you, have you been able to see well. that kind of change in your relationship with uh, the host communities in the areas of uh, conflict, uh, especially against uh, Boko Haram? Thank you very much. Um, we're receiving the best of support and cooperation from members of the community. I think they realize that uh, Operation Hadinkai is here for them. We're sincere, we're truthful, and we're very frank and focused on what we're doing. And they've seen our level of commitment. Uh, we get information as, as quickly as things are happening. Uh, sometimes the challenge might probably be uh, the way to communicate, because uh, it's not everywhere that we have the GSM network. But as soon as they get where they can send messages across to us, they let us know. Any infringement, any, any um, activity of the insurgents, anywhere within the northeast uh, region and uh, we're very appreciative of that and that has assisted us greatly in uh, subduing the insurgents uh, to such an extent that uh, uh, we have so much peace and as i'm sure you're aware we have over 51,000 uh, insurgents and their family members that have surrendered to us they are here they are kept well and um, the ddr program is uh, is being planned and we're sure it will be successful let me take you up a little bit on the, uh, on the insurgents that have uh, surrendered that you uh, mentioned now. There are those who have asked the question, uh, will, are these people not posing uh, some kind of a security challenge or threat, uh, especially because there are so many of them and you're having to keep them close uh, to, uh, to you in the theater uh, there, uh, pending when the decisions on uh, the DDR, as you called it, uh, are taking. What is the situation with them there and how have you found uh, the situation with keeping them with you even though uh, they are now uh, uh, disarmed? Yeah, I think uh, um, normally there will be some concern and I'm sure I don't blame the public for that. But I just want to assure them that we are professionals and uh, we have done this before. We're in Sierra Leone, we're in Niger Delta, we're in other countries where uh, we had issues of disarmament 
what goes on here now is um, as soon as any of them is willing to surrender, he moves, he reports straight to the closest military location. The commander on ground has his troops ready. We disarm them, take over their arms, we search them, uh, take their names and profile them. The state government have members of NIMSI with them that will also take in their data. Uh, we'll put them together in the camp and then the state government will provide transport. Buses that will move them into the various camps. There are three camps that are uh, set up. Uh, they bring them to camp and then we further from the camp, the state government takes care of the management and the administration. What we do is we ensure that the perimeter is secured. Nobody from outside interferes with them in and nobody from in goes out. So I want to assure members of the community that they are well secured and they will not, be, they will not pose any security threats to anybody. And then if we have to do that, we have to look at why are they even coming out? Because I know probably everybody is asking why are they surrendering now? Is it for real or not? Well, uh, for us, the surrendering started since July 2001, uh, 2021. And for them to have been there till date shows you that some level of commitment. And why are they surrendering? Uh, the death of Shekau has opened a lot of um, opportunities because Israel, while he was there, he was very brutal. And anybody who attempts to escape will be killed. We knew even then a lot of them were tired and wanting to come out. But because they were scared of him, he was very, a, violent, a very violent person. And then the splinter group, when they splintered between Iswap and Shekau group, that also assisted, and uh, there was a fight between the two of them. And then when Shekau was killed, there was infighting between the Boko Haram group too for leadership. That further diminished them. And you know our nature of operations, we conduct both kinetic and the non-kinetic. The kinetic is the one that the military does by use of force. And the non-kinetic is the one that is uh, humanitarian in nature. And that's what those, those two approaches were pushed together, the state government doing the uh, non-kinetic aspect while we continue with the kinetic. And I think to them, they realized that it was full-headed to continue with the battle because they know they can never win. And with the situation on ground, we were really itching into their enclaves. And they felt within the two evils, it's better to surrender, knowing that the armed forces of Nigeria are the professional army and we're going to treat them professionally. By the laws of war, once your enemy surrenders, you are duty-bound to receive him and treat him humanely until the process of uh, the legal system takes its course. And that's what exactly we're doing. So I've had reasons people have complained that we are pampering them. We're not pampering them. We're just being in line with the, with the statutory laws on ground. And that's why we ensure that all those ones that are profiled are brought in and kept and well secured until the DDRR program commences. And for now, that's where we are. And I've said over 51,000, out of the 51,000, about 11,000 are males. And not all of them are combatants. Within the mills, we have some that were enslaved, some that were born in it, and some that were conscripted. So gradually those are going to be sorted out, and then the legal system will take its, its course. Now, when you speak about sorting out, um, there are also another group of people. I mean, all these ones you've talked about are the ones who surrendered uh, to your troops. Uh, but there are the other groups uh, of people who were felled in battle, that is that you captured them uh, uh, after battles. They were uh, the result of frontline wars. Those ones are kept differently, is that correct? Yes, those ones are, 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 are sorted out separately. And um, uh, the, the good thing about the battle here in the North is um, almost everybody knows, they know each other. 
And so it's easier to identify who are the combatants and who are the non-combatants. And surprisingly, even the combatants are not shying away from telling you what exactly they did. But uh, in line with your question, those ones that uh, were just captured within the battle area were equally received them out. Uh, those ones that are not part of the combatants are sorted out separately while the combatants are taken out and are treated separately. Those ones the legal system is taking care of. Uh, we equally provide um, uh, security to ensure that they are. the Attorney General of the Federation and his legal team also uh, are part of what is going on because they are the ones that actually sort them out. And once they, they do, those ones that are, don't have any uh, criminal uh, activities against them, they are sorted out and are taken out. And the state government provides succor for them, training skills, and where they are taken back to the society. While those of them that are going for prosecution are kept, and then the legal system takes its course. I want to go back to the earlier point you made about intelligence when you were talking about the shift in focus. Uh, there is, yeah. uh, there had always been the discussion about intelligence gathering, and that some of this host communities where a lot of these atrocities were going on, particularly in the Northeast, were either reluctant or unwilling to give information that would help the military uh, to, you know, go after this militants. Uh, I, I know that I've had conversations with people who have asked the question, how is it possible uh, for, uh, for a group of people to come and take away 400 other people on motorcycles or in a truck uh, across so many uh, kilometers of uh, open land and nobody will see them, nobody will provide information about them to the authorities. So, I mean, even if you use that as the background, uh, what is it that you have found out that has, that has been the stumbling block, so to speak, uh, to uh, proper, concise, and uh, uh, usable intelligence being passed on to the military uh, for action against uh, these terrorists? Yeah, from my experience since taking over, I've been in the theater. This is my fourth tour of duty. Uh, what I realize is that we have those that are actually tired and want this to end. And then those are the ones that are actually cooperating with the military. We have those that don't want it to end. And they cut across uh, all, all stratas. Uh, those ones will do everything to ensure that we don't get this information and then we don't act. Uh, then we have those ones that, because they are scared, probably because of the nature of the area. And um, so it makes it difficult for them to want to divulge any information because they feel any information that is given, uh, they could, there could be repercussions. And then again, like I said, uh, we have family members that don't view what they are doing as being wrong. Uh, a mother has, a, normally for a mother that her child is one, she doesn't look at him like a terrorist. She looks at him like her own child. And so those are the various challenges we're getting. But again, the issue, like I mentioned earlier, the GSM network is not everywhere. So even if they want to pass any information, um, it takes time. And I can tell you some, a lot of people, a lot, most people are willing to give us information that will assist. And again, I want to do this clarification because I know I've had over and over and over sometimes people mention that um, a short kilometer of about 10 kilometers and uh, and troops did not uh, respond. I tell them one of the major threats we're having is the, uh, the use of IEDs, improvised explosives. Uh, these are planted on the roads, and then once you enter, it decimates the vehicle completely. And that is our greatest threat. And if you don't tread carefully, once you step on it, you're gone. And that actually delays our movement. Now, I give an example. 
for the uh, for the counter IED equipments that we use, we still use the normal hand products, which means if we are to cover a kilometer, the man on ground will have to go on foot, we will scan the entire one kilometer. And I can tell you to cover a 10 kilometer will take you like five hours, five to six hours, because it is actually slow. If you make mistake and you step on the IEDs, you are gone. So our prayer and our request is if we can have our roads to be tarred, it will eliminate 60 to 65% of the threat wheel, and then the response time will be a lot better. So uh, on the issue of information gathering, now is a lot better. Like I mentioned earlier, uh, formerly when we started, there was no understanding on the, what the military was doing. And then because it is, you are dealing with non-state actors that are not wearing uniform, it was difficult to identify who is who. And once there's an attack, and then they easily, uh, they easily blend into the community. And then when you come in, you can't really tell who is who because they will hide their weapons and then they blend, they're the same. But we're taking care of that, and then people are giving us cooperation all over. The terrain, I mean, when you, when you reference the issue of GSM, part of what I have learned uh, is responsible for the patchy GSM in some parts of uh, the area uh, are, are two. The first is that the terrain is not extremely friendly. And the second is that uh, yeah. a great deal of vandalization uh, by the insurgents also goes on with some of these facilities. Uh, but I want to focus right, on the right. issue of terrain. Um, many of the uh, hardware that the military has, the tanks, uh, the, uh, the weapons that it uses, uh, there are those who have said to us that um, they are not particularly suited to the uh, terrain in that operational area and that it took a while uh, for the military to get and uh, uh, learn to use the ones that could be. Is that true? And if so, what is, it, what, what is the situation like now? Yeah, you know, the terrain is desert and it's sandy. And, you know, when you have a sandy environment, it makes it very difficult moving. Most of our vehicles, like the tanks, you have 30 tons, 35 tons, 40 tons. So you can imagine what with them, especially the wheeled ones. The wheeled ones are the ones with tires. But the tracked ones, the tracked ones are able to glide through all this terrain quite easily. Uh, I'm sure you're aware that quite recently, just uh, late last year, we, we received a number of uh, uh, fighting vehicles, and that has actually enhanced our capacity. And that's why you see we'll be able to project warfare into the enclaves and camps of the insurgents. Uh, areas where Hidadu had been almost impossible to go in, and which they equally have boasted that we will never get them there, we were able to go. Uh, just early February, we are the Tumbuktu Triangles. We went in all the area from Talala, from Afa, Kafa, all. We have gone in, we have pushed them out. Uh, we have opened the Maiduguri Dambua Biu Road. And then we have also moved to Sambisa Forest, where they felt was their shrine, so-called shrine, and that it was impossible to penetrate. We have gone there, we have pushed in, we are into Mandra Mountains, we are entering the Tumbus. There is nowhere, there is no hiding place for them. What goes for them is because they move light and because they are not wearing uniform uh, and they blend quite easily. So they follow the forests, they follow the tumbles, and then they hide. When we move here, they try to move this way. But I can tell you the synergy between the air, the army, and the maritime, including the civilian Zone Task Force, the uh, vigilantes, and the hunters, has been fantastic. And that is why we have made it so impossible for them to continue to move in large numbers. And what they do now is they go on foot, they hide, come here, try and strike. And what they are looking for? Soft targets. Uh, you can imagine now that we are taking them out, they are now moving towards the northern Borneo, where areas that have been quiet. 
They go there and look for, uh, for, for, for soft targets, attack markets, attack houses, uh, try to abduct people to make money, and then to make it impossible for us to strike because they use them as human shields. And so those are the nature of their own activities, and those are their, the tactics they adopt. So asymmetric warfare is a very, very delicate and difficult warfare. Most times people think, why is it taking so long? It takes so long because it's not somewhere you can just go and cap a bomb everybody. Because there are a lot of innocent people, they blend quite easily with them. So it, you have to be selective, you have to be professional in your approach. And that's why we have to take it quite easily. Given that scenario, of course, I also want to then talk to you about the other uh, bodies that you've mentioned that you just uh, signaled, uh, the Multinational Joint Task Force and then uh, the Civilian JTF. In the case of the Civilian JTF, yeah. because uh, this was an initiative uh, of the state government, uh, but which the military and federal authorities then bought into. Uh, sometimes in the past, yeah. we have heard about the fact that uh, uh, sometimes the, the synergy between both is not quite the same. The military keep them uh, uh, back uh, uh, and say, look, this is a fight. You know, you are not completely prepared for this, you know, and all that. Now, given the scenario on ground, I, I'm wondering, I'm not a military man, but I'm wondering if... Uh, the civilian JTF, if their effect is not better felt in the gathering of uh, intelligence, information for the people who are properly trained uh, uh, in uh, uh, warfare uh, to then use that uh, uh, information to go after these uh, uh, insurgents and to route them in a way that uh, is uh, final yes. and determinative. I agree with you totally, and that's exactly what we're using them for. And uh, just to curtail any excesses, they are properly profiled by the state government. They are employees of the state government. They are being paid monthly by the state government. All we did was that to give them some level of training to understand what security is, how to pass information, how to do this, and that's what we're using them for. And then they have been put into groups with the various commands at their own level. And we'll make sure that we'll superintendent on what they do. So they are not just left on their own to do as they feel. They are being controlled, highly controlled. And um, they are the ones that actually give us these information and be able to take us through because they are the ones that know the terrain quite very well. Uh, within the area, there are some areas we have the cattle routes, which the insurgents use quite easily. It is the civilian JTF that know these things. So they know these routes. They know how to avoid them. And um, I can tell you, even from the surrenders, we are getting a lot of assistance because they are tired and I think they want this to end. So we are all putting hands in deck. Uh, our relationship with uh, the multinational joint taxes is fantastic uh, because the present force uh, commander was the GOC 7 DV here in Maiduguri. Um, we have been together for a very long time. We work very, very closely. Uh, we in, uh, we inter interchange ideas. Uh, I've been to his headquarters. He has been to my headquarters several. We do our planning together. And what we realize is that before now, uh, Operation Hatinka will have three sectors. Sector one here in Maiduguri, sector two at Damatru, and sector three at Mongunu. Uh, normally we do operations with concentrate on one sector, and then these guys easily fizzle out. But what we did this time around is that we, con we conducted operations simultaneously, all sectors, and then coming in with the multinational joints. Because once we do that, they try to thin out through the international boundaries, go to Niger, Chad, or Cameroon, where they relax, and then when we pull out, they now come back. So this time around, they have no hiding place because once they go there, the multinational junk powers will mop up them up from that location. So you can see that the synergy is good. Even the air assets, the maritime assets, all for multinational and for the Operation Heart Inquiry, we worked 
jointly and combinedly. Let me ask you about holding of territory, because you referenced it in your answer to the last question, which is that the military goes in with, or, you know, the air assets, the maritime assets, the civilian JTF, the multinational joint task force, and the insurgents run. Um, they cross international borders, and they go into Niger, they go into Chad and all of that, and then they come back when the military withdraws, which brings up the issue of how we yeah. are holding on to the territory. Because a lot of people who have been told that the areas where they were living before the insurgency is now safe, Nigeria's military has recaptured those areas, who have attempted to return home after the military has withdrawn, uh, report back that the places are still not safe once the military is out of there. So that brings up the issue of how does one hold on to territory once it has been recaptured? Yeah, I, I think we adopted a different measure this time around. Before we return them to any location, we make sure it is totally free. Free from the IEDs, because these IEDs are implanted all over. So any location, and the good thing is we have a working synergy with the state government. The governor has been remarkable in his approach and his cooperation. Now, for anything to be done, we sit down together. He tells us what are his plans, and then we look at it from the security perspective, and then we advise accordingly. Once it is agreed that they are to, re, uh, to, to return to their locations, we go in there with the uh, EOD team, with the police. And I, I'm sure you are aware that Operation Hard and Carry means the Joint Task Force, we have all components of security forces. We have the DSS, the police, the immigration, custom, prisons, all. And everybody plays, plays its role. So once we do that, we all go back to those communities, clear the, the environment, ensure it is safe from IEDs, from any attack. And then the state government moves in and pro provides uh, infrastructure, accommodation, uh, water, healthcare, uh, probably school. And then once that is done and is complete, then we move them in, including and one of our components too is the MOPOL. We have the mobile police with us. So we deploy them, including the civilian JTF, the hunters and the vigilantes together to provide security. And since coming, starting from when the chief of Amistad was here as a as the theater commander, till date, we have not had any of the locations that have been dislodged again. Um, we have moved in. Baga is full. If you go to Baga, it's unbelievable. Uh, Goza, Mafa, Bama, all, they are fully in place, and life is going to, uh, back to normalcy. We have equally opened the roads, and, 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 and they are moving well. All we try to do is, because of this issue of uh, IEDs, that's why we make sure that every morning before, before anybody goes on them, we go around, scan it, and clear it so that we don't want civilians to also fall victim into the IEDs. All the locations are on Malam Fatori, which has been a very long um, issue of on ground. We have uh, civilians back. Uh, the place will be fully back, I'm sure, in the shortest possible time. So we want to assure uh, the public that we're doing the best we can and we're working together because this operation is for Nigeria. And I would like all Nigerians to partner, to take part in it, to take ownership of this operation. It is not the armed forces of Nigerians is a war. It is a Nigerian war because within the armed forces, every tribe, religion, village in Nigeria is represented here. And we have had casualties from all aspects, from everywhere. So uh, I think it's important for us to always understand that this is our war. Another area where many, of the, many people talk about the fact that uh, they posed security threats were the IDP camps, that's the internally displaced persons camps. And I know that there was some level of controversy when the Borno State government uh, decided to uh, uh, close all such camps and, and get the people there moved back to their areas. That has gone pari passu with what you've mm -hmm. just described. 
with the military clearing up those areas and ensuring that they are safe. But the yeah. IDP camps Very themselves, well. how were they being used by the, uh, by the militants uh, uh, or how did they pose a security threat to the operations? Because we knew uh, there were quite a number of them, and I know we have on record uh, Governor Babagana Zulum, uh, Zulum saying that um, when nobody's there, the IDP camps are empty, but the minute that there are uh, uh, NGOs coming with uh, humanitarian aid and so on, all yeah, those people yeah. come back from wherever they went to those camps to come and benefit. Yeah, yeah you know, you know um, we have a peculiarity here in Africa, uh, especially in Nigeria. The IDPs, most times, uh, when we have uh, emergencies as such, uh, unlike other parts of the world, uh, Africans always just as subsume into their family, uh, extended family members. And that's what's happening. So the IDP camps now that have been, uh, have been closed down, most of them are, uh, are still trying to hang around. Probably they are used to the, uh, to the city life, and a lot of them don't want to really go back. And uh, the threats that we get from most of these IDP camps, again, emanates from the fact that uh, family members are part of it. They have uncles, brothers, sons that are part of the insurgents. And then, like I mentioned earlier, the mother looks at it as her son. Her son must stay alive. So if you give her any food, she finds a way of escaping out to go and give him. You give her any medical treatment, she wants to extend that to her child. She is looking at him like her child, not an insurgent. And so those are the challenges we're having. And you know, uh, you still have those that are still trading with those individuals, uh, those ones that benefit. Uh, before the first scarcity, uh, a 25 liters of uh, PMS goes for 150,000 across. If you get it across to the insurgents, anything you sell and you can get across to them, they are willing to pay, pay almost 20, 25 times the amount. So you can see the attraction. And so a lot of people, even if they know, they, uh, they understand the level of threats, but because of what they will gain from it, they are willing to take that risk. To go and say and those are the little things that keep them going and again some of the issues we have is the ability to trail the money uh, you know isis is well structured is part uh, iswap is part of uh, has pledged allegiance to isis so they get their funding from isis and these fundings come from abroad we don't have control over that and that's what the multinational joint tax force is also trying to do to stop them from getting the funds across logistics reinforcement because they come from outside country and and as we are aware libya mali and all these other areas are open and uh, those are areas that are coming with the threat and because we have very porous borders they easily move in and get this support across so those things get, also get into the idp camps but i'm happy that the idp camps are gradually winding down and i'm sure with, within the shortest possible time they will all go back to their communities and then we'll not have them again how much is small arms uh, proliferation a problem do you think uh, in this battle, because as you just uh, you just pointed out, Mali, Libya, um, and other countries that are bought Nigeria, uh, and given the border situation, uh, we are witnessing that these people come in and go out, uh, even when the army goes after them. Uh, how much of a problem is small arms proliferation? Do you think? And uh, you know, what do, would you uh, look at as a as a good way of tackling it from the experience you have had? It is one of the biggest threats the country has, the proliferation of small arms and light weapons. They are all over. And because anywhere you have porous borders, those are the challenges. And then when you have forests that are unmanned, so things we need to look at is the ability to be able to establish our border control, 
to be able to have rangers that will take care of our forests so that they don't just leave them open. And that brings the idea of community policing. Uh, what we're doing with the civilian JTF and the hunters and the vigilantes is something somewhat of uh, like uh, uh, community policing. The civilian JTF are from each community, so they know the community, and then the, 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 the community leaders know them. They can vouch for them, and that's when we use them. So um, small, I'm, I'm happy that we, uh, there's a parastatal that has been established to take care of that, and I think it's something we should really, really look into. Uh, we have uh, Central African Republic is open, Sudan, um, uh, Libya, Mali, so it is wide. And then these arms are posing a very, very, very great threat to us. Are non-governmental organizations either acting as humanitarian assistance bodies and so on are all over the place in uh, your theater of command there. And sometimes uh, there are altercations because the military uh, wants to know who exactly is doing what, where and when uh, and with who. Uh, and the, uh, the NGOs sometimes uh, get caught in the crosshairs uh, how is that situation being attended to? Because some of the NGOs, uh, as the military has said in the past, uh, have been found to be engaged in activities that are not altogether uh, humanitarian. Uh, so there's a dividing line between deciding who is genuine and who is using uh, that platform for uh, particularly uh, dangerous uh, uh, activities. How, how are you coping with that? How are you dealing with that? How are you relating with the NGOs in your theatre? Yeah, we, we, we have the J9. The J9 is charge of civil military affairs. We have the humanitarian officer who also engages with them. What we do is that for them to operate within the theatre, they sought, they ask for permission. They seek permission from us. We want to know what activities they are doing. Before now, it was a problem because when they came with the mindset, that we shouldn't know what they are doing, they, 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 that we should leave them to travel wherever they feel like and do whatever. We said, no, this is a sovereign nation. We have rules and regulations, and then guided by the state. And so what they do is that any of them coming in is registered by the state. The state now writes to us to inform us, yes, these ones have been deleted. The DSS will allow them to profile them so that we ensure that they are legitimate in line with what is done. So when they come with us, and we have periodic discussions with them, almost on a monthly basis. And so they write to us to tell us what they are doing. Uh, we provide some level of security where they are moving, and we tell them where they can go and where they cannot go. Uh, before now, uh, it was something that actually brought a lot of tension between us. But I think we have a better understanding that we're all working for the same aspect. The humanitarians are doing some good job because uh, the issue of feeding, uh, healthcare, uh, taking care of the um, uh, pregnant women and, and, uh, and, and uh, especially like UNICEF for children. Uh, the ability to succeed also enhances our ability. Uh, the kinetic effort is just about 20-25% of the entire operation. Most of it, like I mentioned earlier, is humanitarian. And so once we're able to handle those aspects, it makes our job a lot easier. So we have an understanding, we have a synergy. Again, we're also watching what they do. And anyone we found that is, uh, uh, is having a different intention, I think we call them to order immediately. And so far, it has been good. Uh, we'll continue to monitor what they're doing. We've had reports here and there. Uh, we look into it, we investigate, we call the police and the DSS to do thorough investigation to ascertain the level of commitment. And uh, so far, uh, we've not had any issue for now. The military is uh, 
as I've spoken to some of your colleagues in, uh, in the past, the military is not completely uh, com uh, conversant or comfortable uh, with uh, civil relations. They're getting into that now. So there had been uh, allegations of uh, some level of high-handedness and uh, uh, brutality on the part of the troops, especially when they encounter resistance, uh, which, is, which may not be military. Uh, um, have you experienced that? And uh, what, has the, what have the authorities, what have you been doing to ensure that your troops stay within what you described earlier in the interview as international humanitarian law, even for those who may have confronted uh, the military? Yes, one country with the military is that we don't hide criminals. Anybody and everybody knows the military law. Um, somehow we are bonded by two laws, the Constitution and the Armed Forces Act. So you understand that we have these two laws guiding our activities, and we've, we hold on to those very, very seriously. Uh, the nature of our training, right from the Nigerian Defense Academy, from the depot, our training institutions, we conduct training on humanitarian assistance or humanitarian rules, rules of law, and all. So every soldier, every officer knows what is required of him, and nobody is left in the blank. And you see, we conduct training, even here in the theater. We have the NGOs, they always come and then we do this training together just to keep us abreast on what is going on and what is expected of our troops. Uh, the Chief of Army Staff has established standing uh, court marshals for anybody who has committed any offense whatsoever uh, goes to court marshal and everybody knows what, what, what the rule says. So nobody is left in doubt. Uh, so far it has been wonderful. Uh, it, we cannot say it is 100%. I mean, when humans, even in families, you have, we have conflicts. But what we do is that once it is reported, we have the, uh, we have the uh, human rights desk. We have established human rights desk uh, with a phone number uh, spread, distributed all around. Everybody knows once there is anything and you think a soldier did something wrong to you and all, people call in and then the military police steps in would carry out investigation. If it's wrong, it's, it's, it's prosecuted. So, so far it has been wonderful. I'm sure if you have time, you go around. Uh, the Northeast, uh, I think we have been living above board and we'll continue to do that. Uh, you talked about, you know, a wide expanse of, uh, of theater land to cover uh, lots of uh, people to protect, lots of areas to, to get uh, uh, over. Uh, what, and we have heard in the recent past, uh, and not so recent past, about uh, troops uh, being very upset at not being given arms uh, uh, adequate in their view to face the opponents. They talk about, or they talked about, the opponents being stronger than them at the time. So, uh, you are in a good position to actually tell us what the situation is there. It, what, what, was that true? And uh, if it was, what has changed uh, now? Um, like I said, initially when the operation started, uh, you, you, you equally alluded to it that uh, the weapons that were being used were not adequately, adequately for the environment. But that has been uh, taken care of. No soldier comes to the theater without arms. No soldier comes into the here without the requisite equipment for him to use. We cannot have everything 100%, but with what we have on ground, we have been able to achieve so much, and that's what we keep on pushing. But this is my fourth tour of duty. Uh, 2018, I was here as uh, brigade, active brigade commander, Operation Last Hold. I returned uh, in 2019 as the sector commander on Chad of Mongonu. I returned in 2020 heading the uh, monitoring, the Army headquarters monitoring team, and I'm back here last year as the theater commander. So all 
have been is have been on the operational ground. Uh, the vehicles we have now are doing the job. The training we conduct now, even while in the theater, we, 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 we carry out training. Before any soldier, uh, any soldier or officer is inducted into the theater, there is a pre-induction training. He comes in, we continue with the training consistently, even in theater training, wherever his location is. We go to the range, we conduct all this training to ensure that um, our soldiers remain very, very professional where, wherever they are. So I think the, to this extent, we do not have all we need, but with what we have, we can do. So imagine now we're having almost 30, 40 percent of what we need. Imagine if we had had maybe 80 or 90, what we would be able to achieve. But I think it's ongoing. And the truth about it is that for us to be independent as a nation, we need to produce our own equipment. As long as we rely on other people to produce what we need, we'll be held ransom. And that's what we're facing. Uh, most times, these are the equipments you can't get off the shelf. So sometimes you order them. Look at how long it took for us to get the Tucano uh, aircraft, over three years. Uh, so these things are not easy. We must build our own industrial complex. We must produce what we use. And that's the only way out. How about personnel? Yeah, yeah, we need, we need additional manpower. I, I can tell you that for free. The military is everywhere. We shouldn't be everywhere. Uh, the military is everywhere. I was one before now in 2015, 2016. I was the commandant depot where we produced soldiers that took. I trained over 12,500 recruits, young soldiers. They are with me. Some of them are still with me here in the theater. And we need to build out capacity. We need manpower. But you know, it is not something we rush because we have to take time to ensure we select well we train well. We don't want to pick people that are not trainable. We don't want to pick criminals into the system. So we, it is painstaking for us to produce one soldier. For us to produce an officer, especially as a regular officer going through NDA, it takes four, five years. Apart from probably short service that takes maybe one, six months, nine months and all that. So it takes a lot and it costs so much. And we are very, very careful on how and who we take in. And that's why it takes a little time. But I think what we're doing now is... Um, the last ones, the, past, uh, the recruited ones that came out, about 5,000. We have some that very so few months are going to come out. If we continue this, gradually we'll be able to build up. But again, the truth about it is that the military cannot do everything. We cannot be everywhere. No nation develops if we don't have a good police. We have a police. We need them to be properly trained, trained to do some of these aspects. The Mopol before now used to carry us on. Most of what we're doing is that the Mopol will have been able to, to handle some of these things. So we need to build this capacity so that we can all together put hands together to end this. And I tell you for free, asymmetric warfare is not a warfare that uh, is not a child's play. It is serious business because it is all governmental approach. We need all hands probed from the communities, from all the armed forces, from all the paramilitary organizations, from everybody needs to be part of it for it to be successful. I'm sure if you look at other countries that have gone through it, they will tell you the same. There is a welfare issue involved in all of this because those who have said, or those who have said we need to look at it very carefully, have also said that if you ramp up the Nigerian military uh, uh, in terms of numbers, then the issue of their welfare comes up. And I'm sure you are familiar with that, uh, having had several tours of duty in that area, that uh, in, the, in the recent and not so recent past, we have had quite a number of them complaining about unpaid allowances and salaries. And, and, and in some cases, uh, even taking their, uh, their theater commander, uh, not you, but one of your predecessors, uh, almost taking him hostage at a point uh, for that reason. So I, I, want, I wanted to find out, uh, you know, if the situation now uh, is such that 
in terms of welfare and in terms of how the troops themselves are treated, uh, the, you know, it has, uh, there has been a vast improvement, uh, both in terms of uh, their kit uh, and in terms of their income. Very well. I can tell you for free that we're having the best of time. There is no soldier or any officer that is owned anything. Salaries are paid as a when due. Allowances are paid as a when due. Uh, the chief of army staff ensures that whatever it is that we need. Remember, he just left the theater. So he is an experienced general who is doing everything to ensure that the theater moves as it should. Uh, the other service chiefs are equally doing the same thing. Uh, the allowances are paid. Both Every member of the theater gets his money as at when due. Sustenance and maintenance costs are also paid. Uh, we don't have any challenge on that. Feeding, everybody is fed well. Clothing, equipment are provided. If any soldier is injured, we have a medical center. The aircraft, however it is, uh, just a few days ago, we had um, uh, around Arege in northern Borno towards the Tumbus. There was a vehicle-borne IED that, um, that struck one of our MRAPs. The soldiers in, were, the Nigerian soldiers that were in were secured. The splinter, uh, that was around 8 p.m. at night. Uh, hit one of my officers and he was injured and a helicopter flew in that night dropped within there picked him up and brought him to medical center nobody is left behind and we're doing that to ensure that because we know the importance nobody will sacrifice his life and then he will be abandoned nobody now even those ones that are injured prosthetics are provided for them uh, if eventually somebody pays the supreme price the family members are taken care of and those are done such a way that everybody's morale remains extremely very high. Sometimes there could be delays, and it is never intentional. And we know that nothing is 100%, but we assure you that um, everything is being done to ensure that the troops are happy. And it is only when they are happy and their morale is high that they can give us the best. And that's what we're doing. The Chief of Army Service has equally um, uh, arranged for uh, welfare flights. Now, any soldier that is leaving, going on, officer or soldier that is going on flight, not only military men, Everybody that is part of Operation Hat in Kai, if you are going for your two weeks pass, there is an aircraft that will pick you up, you go for your two weeks pass, and when you come back, the aircraft brings you back. Those ones that are going by road are escorted and taken care of. So uh, I think we're having the best of times now. I must ask you this since we are talking about that, and um, that has to do with when you talk about the ultimate price. Uh, every Nigerian soldier, um, you know, signs up you know, to pay that uh, uh, ultimate price. But of course, the hope is that they will not have to. So each time they do, uh, each time they do, it's, it's, quite, um, it's quite tough. I, I, I ask you this because in your capacity as a general, you must have seen this happen uh, many, many times uh, in various uh, theaters. Uh, what is it like uh, when you lose a soldier on the battlefront, and how do you cope and move on uh, with the military objective uh, even when that happens? Uh, I can tell you it is traumatic for any commander to lose his personnel. It is painful, it is heartbreaking. Uh, it is something that nobody prays for, uh, because for you to even face the family to break the news to them, and especially during the burial, because they look at you like they've entrusted their personnel to you and look at what has happened to them. Um, so it's something that uh, every commander will have to uh, get used to. Uh, and you pray, like you said, it doesn't happen. But again, because we're fighting war, this is not drama. 
So it is for real. And uh, we try to make sure that we inform the family members to understand that whoever joins the military, the ultimate price is death. And so it happens. And then we have to deal with it. And so when it happens, we get across to them, we console them. And then uh, the burial is arranged, the military provides everything for them. And then we make sure that the entitlements are paid. And the family members, uh, a wife and four kids, are paid their school fees up till the, up till the time they are 18. Uh, so these things are being put in place. But like I tell you for real, it is heartbreaking for you to lose any member of your, or any of your troops. When you have paid such a high price to secure victory in a particular area and then those that you are fighting against move to another area, uh, not too long ago, uh, the commander-in-chief uh, expressed uh, his view that uh, some of what is going on in the northwest and in the north central uh, is as a result of those that have been fought to a standstill in the northeast moving to those areas where they believe that uh, things uh, are less hot. Uh, and that I ask... Given the background you gave us earlier about the three uh, operational uh, points from which the theater command had in Kai operate, uh, that would mean why that or that would explain why they've left uh, that area. Is it a viable uh, thing you think uh, for the military to expand such operations in such a way that in those other areas where things are possibly less hot, they become also as hot uh, for the insurgents? No, very well. That has been done. That has been done as we speak. Uh, the various commanders in North Central, North West are equally doing the same. You know, like we said, um, they easily filter out. What they do is that, like when we went to the Tumbuktu Triangle, a lot of them just took haircuts, dropped their uniforms, took their belts, wore their normal dresses, and just walked into towns. They go to normal park, take vehicles, and travel. You cannot see them and identify who they are. And that's what the danger of the operation, because you don't know who they are. Conventional warfare is the type that you fight against countries. You know the uniform they're wearing. But these ones, you can't tell. And because weapons are everywhere, they don't need to carry any weapon from point A to point B. They go there, they get where they are, and they're using. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, the service chiefs are on, on, on that. Uh, the operations have commenced already quietly. Um, we're not making so much noise about it. And I'm sure we will we'll get over it uh, very, very soon. It's quite unfortunate that they've moved into those areas, but I'm sure we're also taking adequate uh, measures to, 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 to address the issue. I must ask this uh, as uh, my very, very final uh, question. Do you think uh, uh, mercenaries would help in tackling uh, Boko Haram and uh, other such insurgents? Because there are, there's a narrative that you, you know, in the run-up to the elections of 2015, mercenaries were brought and they assisted the Nigerian military, and there was a great deal of success. Um, and there are some who are, again, calling for them uh, at this point, including uh, uh, some of the political leaders in, in the country. Do you, do you believe that they could be of help? Uh, not at all. Um, we already have a number of criminals coming from all over the, country, all over the world coming to interfere with our security. I think we've had enough of them. Uh, in the past, while they came and were able to do a bit, it was because they had equipment. Now we have the equipment. And as a professional, I mean, you know, we have been everywhere. We're in Liberia, we're in uh, Bakasi, we're in Sierra Leone. We did so well. Why not for our own country? Uh, these equipments we have had, I've told you we have just about 30% of what we require. We've been able to achieve this in the Northeast. Imagine if we had had like 100 or 90% of those items. So, 
The trick is with modern equipment, especially with ICT, we go technology. Once we are able to improve on that, we will be able to do the job. We don't need anybody from outside to come and tell us what to do or how to do it. All we need is this support. Once we get these equipments we require, we are capable, we are professionals, uh, army, we'll be able to do that and we'll be able to achieve that without having any support. And again, those ones that are coming, so-called uh, machineries or military contractors, are doing it for the business, it's for the money. And the tendency when they come is, well, first and foremost, they will be very expensive. Why not use that money to fund your military? And they're here to make money. And I've told you they have the tendency to also even prolong your wars or even create more ones so that you can continue to sustain them and continue to pay them. The best way is equip the military fully, equip the security forces fully, and we'll be able to do the job. Major General Christopher Musa, thank you so much uh, for uh, your time and for your perspective on the program today. Much. It's been good to speak with you. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. That's our program today. We would, of course, like to hear from you on the conversation. Our social media handles are right there on your screen. You can also listen to this and previous episodes of the program via our podcast. Please visit our website, channelstv.com, to get started. I am Ladi Akiridulwale. Goodbye.